Due to technical difficulties, there has been a loss in quality of the following audio, and it is difficult to understand it sometimes. We thank you for listening, but would like to apologize for the quality issues. Uh, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, uh, I would love to, to meet. Uh, if you're a guest here, thank, thank you for being here. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, I also want to say specifically, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I just want to say thank you for being here specifically because it, it's a big deal to come into a space like this when you know that you may not believe all the things that are shared in the room. Um, I will say this. As believers, we gather on Sunday mornings not because we uh, just don't have, uh, happen to not have a boat, uh, we're not here simply because we didn't get a better invite for the weekend. We actually are here because we believe that the living God is one who meets us in life and speaks to our hearts, and we come both to worship him and to be spoken to from, by him. And so this morning, as we step into this, this passage of scripture that Amanda just read, I, I'm asking that the Lord would speak to you in the same way he's speaking to me today. It's not about words that I've prepared. It's not about uh, some clever recitation. This is about us encountering the living God. So that's my hope for this morning. Uh, before we uh, pray and get started on this, I will say for those of you that don't know, I am fresh off vacation, which means I'm exhausted. Uh, 4,200 miles in a car. There's <clears throat> a lot of driving. A lot of driving. We saw Georgia. We saw North Carolina. Got to see a whole bunch of stuff in between that I'd just love to skip through a little faster. Um, I'm all for speed limit being 90 when it's a state you just can't wait to get out of. Because we hit a couple of those. Um, and also 30A in Florida um, says 65 and the speed limit's 20 because everybody's moseying. And it drove me nuts the entire time. But enough about that except to say this. I got to hang out with Frontline Fayetteville last Sunday. Uh, and it was just, it was just, it was a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. If you're not familiar with what's been going on there, you're new here. Uh, this is a church that Frontline has just recently sent out to plant a new church in, in Frontline, or plant a new church in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And uh, not only did we get a chance to send at the end of last year, uh, the Murphys to go start that work, um, but with a lot of gratitude and a lot of sadness in May, we sent two of our own, Blake and Marissa Burrow, to go help start that church. And, and I was talking with one of our uh, partner church leaders, one of our partner pastors in uh, Moorhead City, North Carolina, last week while I was out there, a guy named Donnie Griggs, some of you guys know, a uh, phenomenal guy, and, and he just said, I want you to tell Frontline Yukon how much of a shot in the arm it was for the Murphys and what's going on in Fayetteville that Blake and Marissa were sent. He goes, I was there in the spring and I was there last week and it has made a world of difference. So we as a church are about church planting, which means our yes is on the table, our keys are on the table, whatever Jesus says we'll do. And sometimes that comes with pain, but God always uses that to advance his kingdom. And so I want to say thank you on behalf of people in Fayetteville that don't even know, yet know that this church exists and on behalf of the Murphys, that we as a congregation were willing to send, not just let go of, but send our best um, to go and serve them. So thank you for being a church that's a sending church, and we're going to continue to be able to share stories of what happens uh, out of that, uh, but I want to just give you a quick update. It's beautiful to be with them. The Lord's doing a lot there, and uh, they'll be launching publicly this fall, so we'll be praying for them. Okay. I want to pray for you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray for me as we dive into this text because I really do believe that God wants to say something to our hearts today in this, in this passage. So God, would you speak to us? In the noise that may be swirling in our heads and our hearts, would you speak clearly through that? 
Areas where we may disbelieve, where where you stir faith. Where we may be hesitant to move towards these truths, would you lead us? And where our hearts need to hear, why are you so afraid? Would we hear from from the mouth of our good Father that you are with us and you are for us? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, movies are interesting things, are they not? Um, and I think what's fascinating about watching, uh, I, I'll just be honest, I, I don't think there's been a good movie created since, I don't know, maybe the early 2000s. I don't know. Is it, is it just me? It just seemed to, I think it's just me. I think I'm a curmudgeon uh, and I'm picky about everything. But uh, th- there, it's interesting watching what movies and, and what TV shows trend because I actually think it does say something about us as a culture, yes, and it's really easy to throw stones at the culture, but it says something about us. And, and one of the things that you just never can seem to get enough of are superhero movies, right? Marvel and DC, I mean, when are they going to stop? When are, I mean, probably when we stop showing out money to go see their movies, but it says something that this is a constant theme because we go to movies, why? To, to escape reality, right? There's a sense in which often we're drawn to watch things that pull us out of our reality and, and give us, maybe, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a fanciful hope, but a hope that maybe actually things could be different. And I think there's something interesting about these, the, the superhero movies because th- there's an aspect in which I think we think that we long to have the ability to solve our own problems and control our own destiny. And so we like watching a movie where somebody gets to do that. They get to swoop in out of the middle of nowhere and set everything at ease. We, we, we think that it would be awesome if with a little grit, some perseverance, and a whole lot of spandex, we could eliminate threats in our world, don't we? Maybe the spandex side. We wish we could control it. We wish we had the power to control. But despite this fascination, we know that, that, that in reality, we don't have the power, to, power, nor do we have the authority to control storms when they rage around us, don't we? We realize that. We realize that. We may try to escape in a movie theater, but we know deep down that something else is going on. This passage is about a storm that Jesus calms. Well, it's a storm. It's a it's a it's a passage that many of us, even if you didn't grow up in church, have probably heard and been familiar with at one level or another. And we could look at this passage and we could talk about the ways in which storms emerge in our life and how Jesus meets us in the midst of the storm and calms the waters. And that would be a true and good sermon. But we basically preached that sermon in a whole sermon series in the book of Job earlier this year. And I, rec- I recommend going back and listening to that. You can go to yukon.frontlinechurch.com and listen to those sermons in Job. Where we could talk about the fact that when storms rise, anxieties stir, and we need somebody to bring peace to our anxious hearts. But actually, Chad and I have been preaching on that through Mark in various capacities because we've hit that same theme already in the book of Mark. I think what we need to do in this passage is to be confronted by this situation the very same way the disciples were confronted. They weren't confronted just with somebody who calmed a storm. They were confronted with the reality that they thought they knew who Jesus was, and they didn't. They thought they knew who he was, but they didn't. So here's what I want to do. I want to read this passage, 
us to see in this how the disciples are seeing Jesus in this text, okay? So Mark 4, verse 35 to 41. On that day when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm, a windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling up. Now, let's just take a pause moment. There, there, there are some interesting details in this text that actually ju- that would not exist in the passage, except that this is eyewitness testimony. You don't say things like, he went in the boat just as he was, and there were other boats with him. It, it's in, it's, it doesn't advance the story at all. This is only there because these people actually saw this, and they're, they're, it's eyewitness account. Second, these are professional fishermen who have made their living on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was known that storms would come in really fast and dissipate really fast. But 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 these fishermen know this sea like the back of their hand, and they have seen storms come and go. So in other words, they didn't just get caught off guard because the storm did something funky. They know that the storm's not the only power in play. Verse 37, and the great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? But he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I think for us to see this passage with the fresh eyes we need to see it with, we need to focus on those three questions in those last two chapters. There are three specific questions asked, two by Jesus, one by the disciples, that that need to lead us into understanding how this text shaped and impacted them. The first one comes in verse 40, when Jesus turns to his disciples and says, why are you so afraid? Well, the obvious part of the question is, they're about to die. They're about to die. (laughs) The storm has come. The storm is, the, the waves are so, so big and so full, they're filling up the boat with water, they're bailing it out, and they're yelling at Jesus, hey, Jesus, wake up, lazy, get up and get a bucket, we gotta get out of this mess. And they want Jesus to get up and start bailing water with them. Right? The storm is raging, the reason they're afraid is because they're in a storm that could kill them. But what Jesus here does is he, he, yes, he calms the storm. But what he's doing is he's showing them an aspect of himself that they did not yet see. See, these disciples have been following Jesus for some time now. They've seen him in lots of different situations. They've, They've heard him as a great teacher. They've experienced him as a kind and compassionate presence. They've seen him heal and do miracles at, in, in these small circles. And he's done some cool stuff, but, but they were caught off guard with this one. 
We're caught off guard with this one. Jesus is showing them who he is uh, piece by piece through the gospel of Mark, but this one right here is a doozy. Jesus shows them he has authority over creation. Authority over creation. You see, like I said, they, these, these disciples were professional fishermen. They, they know when a storm just happens to dissipate, and they know when somebody told it to go and told the waves to stop rocking. And it scared the daylights out of them. <laughs> it scared the daylights out of them. William Lane says this in, in his commentary on Mark. The subduing of the sea and the wind was not merely a demonstration of power. It was an epiphany. Let me read that again. The, the subduing of the sea and the wind is not merely a demonstration of power. It was an epiphany through which Jesus was unveiled to his disciples as the Savior in the midst of intense peril. Very early, this incident was understood as a sign of Jesus' saving presence in the persecution which threatened to overwhelm the church. It's not surprising that the early Christian art, that in early Christian art, the church was depicted as a boat driven upon a perilous sea. With Jesus in the midst, there was nothing to fear. You see, the point is that Jesus isn't just a good teacher. Jesus isn't a, a trickster, a huckster, somebody who walks around with little cheap, cheap, cheap magician tricks. Maybe, maybe, somebody could, maybe somebody could say uh, they watched this paralytic come in and then Jesus heals them. Maybe, they, maybe you could make the excuse, oh, well, he, maybe he, really wasn't, he wasn't really lame. This is just Jesus trying to show off and make something happen. He, maybe they would have seen some miracles and written them off as, well, that's easy, that's easy to make up. This one <laughs> is it. I may be able to try to, to, I may, I may be able to, try to, 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 to pull something over, pull a fast one on you, in regards to some small thing, but I can't tell the wind to stop blowing and the waves to stop shifting. And Jesus does. The implications of this for the disciples are huge. Because Jesus is not a mere prophet walking around. The only person that can control creation like this is the person who created it. At this point, the disciples had, had seen Jesus as big, but they had not seen him as big as he really is. Somehow they had saw Jesus as impressive but manageable. Impressive but manageable. Maybe he won't demand too much of my life. Maybe, maybe he's, he's got authority over there and over there, but, he, but he's not the absolute sovereign. And now they come face to face with a God who tells the storm to stop, and it stops, and they realize they're dealing with somebody entirely different. Let me ask you this. Where have you, in your life, in your, your view of God, have you so whittled him down so that he's manageable? Where have you taken Jesus down a few pegs so that maybe he can't actually demand of your life what he demands of your life? I'd love to say that that's probably y'all's problem, but not mine, but that's mine. The number of times my doubt and skepticism have actually driven my heart into places to try to knock him down a peg or two so he can't actually make demands of my life is more than I'd like to admit. But in this text, we have an invitation to see Jesus as something bigger than we've ever embraced him as.
So Jesus has authority over creation. But there's a second question. Verse 40. And Jesus says to them, have you still no faith? Well, that one's got a barb on it, doesn't it? (laughs) That one hurts. You see, Jesus isn't just asking them here, why do they didn't have faith that he had authority over creation? That, that, that was something that they didn't yet understand fully. But he's not simply going, hey, why did you not have faith that I had this much power? The question actually goes way deeper than that. The question goes way deeper than that. The question actually hits at the root of him asking why they didn't have faith that he had authority over their particular circumstance, their particular fear, their particular storm. It wasn't that the disciples were simply, uh, uh, simply uh, not seeing Jesus, or not having faith that Jesus had enough power. They were accusing him, in one sense, by their lack of faith of not, not being able to protect and preserve. You see, if the storm had raged while they were tight and, and snug in their beds, they wouldn't have worried. They didn't, they didn't want Jesus to just simply show off This wasn't just about Jesus' power. It was about his care and his protection of them in the circumstances they found themselves in. The disciples didn't have faith in his ability to actually care for them and actually protect them. You see, in this text, we see Jesus' power. That's, that's, That's unbelievable. It hearkens to what, what Paul will write right later in Colossians 1, where we recognize that it's actually Jesus wasn't like sitting on the sidelines watching God create the universe going, Yay, God, go! Colossians actually says that Jesus, it's in Jesus, through Jesus, that creation was created. That Jesus is not some trickster, some prophet that just happens to run side by side with God and is a fan of God, but he is God. But not only does he have power of creation, he's aware. He sees. He knows. And he cares. The disciples ask, why do you not care that we are perishing? Because he's taking a nap. And yet the only one that actually deeply, really, truly cared was him. But if there's one thing that's central to Christian doctrine, it is that God does not change. In other words, Jesus didn't used to know, used to care, used to be aware. He now knows. He is aware now. And he does see and care. Jesus has never changed. Just as he was aware of what was going on with the disciples in the boat in the storm, he's aware of you as you sit in a boat rocked by storms that I may not even know about. This truth means that God has the power, Jesus has the power and the authority to change our circumstances. He does. No matter what your circumstances are, he actually does have the power to change them. So if he doesn't change our circumstances, it's not because he doesn't have the ability. And we already see it's not because he doesn't care. There must be a reason. Tim Keller says it this way in his book, Jesus the King. 
If you have a God great enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he doesn't stop your suffering, then you also have a God who's great enough and powerful enough to have reasons that you can't understand. You can't have it both ways. I have to say that he's big enough and powerful enough also means that maybe he won't always stop the storm. And it's not because he doesn't have power. And it's not because he doesn't, have, that he doesn't care. He has something else in mind. I can't tell you what that is. The disciples can't tell you what that is, but let me just say this very clearly. If you keep reading in Mark and you read through the rest of the New Testament, you'll find this very, very clearly. There are storms coming that Jesus won't calm for the disciples. When persecution hits Jerusalem and, J- and James, one of Jesus' three closest to him, dies and the church scatters, I know that there are many of them going, Jesus, why don't you calm this storm? Why don't you calm this one? I don't know why he didn't. Neither did the, the disciples. What this story tells us is that it's not because he lacks power and it's not because he doesn't care. So we trust in his power and his care to be with us even if the storms continue to rage. They are not random. They are not in control. They are held and controlled by the sovereign God. Let me ask this. Where have you begun to lose faith, not just in God, in Jesus' power. Maybe, maybe you have. Maybe, maybe you've doubted his power. But maybe you've just begun to doubt that he cares. Maybe you've begun to doubt that he actually sees you. Maybe you've begun to doubt and lack faith in his love for you. I just plead with you to see this Jesus in this text. And the same Jesus that calmed this storm and let other storms rage never left his post. He never stopped having authority. He never stopped caring. That this story introduces us to a God of power, yes, but a God of presence. A God of power and a God of presence. His first two questions were ones that Jesus asked his disciples and now it's their turn. <laughs> and this is all they're left with in verse 41. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? They're not simply asking for Jesus' social security card to prove who he is. They're, they're not asking for him to show his ID. They're, they're, they're wrestling with the fact that they thought they knew who he was and they didn't. They thought they knew who he was and they didn't. Right before their question it says this, and they were filled with great fear. When were they filled with great fear? During the storm? No, they were afraid during the storm. They were filled with great fear in the calm. When everything chilled out. They were terrified. Keller says it this way. Before Jesus calms the storm, they're afraid. But after Jesus calms the storm, they're terrified. 
Why were they more terrified in the calm than they were in the storm? Because Jesus was as unmanageable as the storm itself. The storm had immense power. They couldn't control it. But Jesus has infinitely more power, so they have even less control over him. But there's a huge difference here. The storm doesn't love you. Jesus' power is unbounded, but so are his wisdom and his love. You see, Jesus doesn't just have authority over creation. And he doesn't just have authority over our circumstances. He has authority over us. If this text teaches us anything, it is that he has authority over creation. Yes, he has authority over our circumstances. Yes, but he has authority over us. He's not some cheap trickster hoping to bring us along and coddle us along. He is an undomesticated God. He is an uncontrollable God. He is an unmanageable God. So often we try to diminish him so that we can raise ourselves. If he's small, we can be big. If he's small, I can treat him like a pacifier. I'm a little upset, so I'll suck on something to make me feel better. And then when I'm done, I'll just throw it to the ground. That's not how you treat the sovereign over creation. There are three ways in which I think we domesticate God, or domesticate Jesus, or try to anyway. You never actually can pull it off. You can try. I tried to raise a bobcat once. It didn't work well. True story. I could tell you that another time. I tried to domesticate. It didn't work. We try to domesticate Jesus in many ways. I think in one way we try to domesticate him is to turn him into a genie. Turn him into a genie. I, I rub the lamp a certain way. I do a certain thing. I, 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 I genuflect the right way. I, I muster up enough faith. I belong to the right political party. I, 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 I come faithfully to Sunday and to community group and to prayer times and to whatever else. I can get myself up out of bed. And Jesus gives me gifts, man. Scratch his back, he scratched mine. He's a genie. Really powerful. Really convenient. The prosperity gospel does this. Christian nationalism does this. Fundamentalism does this. We do this. We turn him into a genie to do our bidding. Do what I want, Jesus. Do what I want. Another way we try to domesticate him is to turn him into our life coach. Need a little bit of counsel, Jesus. I'm feeling a little depressed and discouraged. If you could... You know, ran out of fortune cookies, so I don't have those inspirational phrases. Maybe you've got something in your Bible. He's just a life coach. He's just helping us get by. He's here to sidle up next to us and go, hey, have you ever considered this? Or have you thought about this? Or, I don't know, here's some suggestions. We don't want Jesus to be authoritative. We just want him to be convenient. Another way we domesticate him is to Treat him like bubble wrap. Protect ourselves from pain, man. I cuddle up and pull Jesus close and he's going to keep me from getting hurt. 
Jesus isn't a genie. He's not a life coach. He's not bubble wrap. I hope that's not the first time you've ever considered that. But he is king. If he's king over the wind and he's king, king over the waves, he's king over you. I'm afraid for my own soul on this. And I'm afraid that we as a church could, if we're not careful, just slowly trend down a path in which Jesus does our bidding and Jesus is convenient and and Jesus is there to never push me beyond my comfort zone or never actually send me out into mission in my neighborhood, to never actually demand something in my life, but he's he's just convenient for us and we begin to treat him as manageable. I'm afraid that we, we, Frontline Yukon, we can domesticate him. I also wonder how many of you in this room maybe either profess faith in Jesus, but you're not really sure that you have it, or maybe you just don't even profess that you believe Jesus. And part of it is because you're scared of this. You don't want him to be authority. Well, I'll just say he has authority. That's never been the question. But this Jesus is not only king, he's a good king. He's not just king, he's a wise king. He's not just king, he's a present king. He's not a king who's indifferent, but a king who's aware. And this passage right here demands something of every single one of us in this room. It demands something. It demands all of us. It demands our hearts. It demands our minds. It demands our allegiance. If this God wasn't good, that'd be scary as heck. But he is good. So I don't know where this is stirring in you. I don't know what this is pushing on you. For people that, that are believers in the room, where are the areas in which you have treated God as a convenient, a convenient counselor along the side and domesticated him? And where do you need to be confronted by the reality that he's authority of creation, yes, of circumstances, yes, but he's authority over you? Where are areas that you've said, yeah, Jesus, but? If you're not a Christian in this room, I'm glad you're here. There's no question off limits. There's no doubt we're going to push out the door. There's no skepticism we're going to ridicule. We'd love to talk. But let me say this. Jesus doesn't just make this claim of believers. He makes it of everyone. But this is a God you can trust. He's a God you can trust. And he may calm storms that are raging in your life, and he may not. But it's never because he lacks power. And it's never because he lacks love. And it's never because he's asleep on a cushion in a boat and isn't aware. He 
is our God. Would you stand?